Well, hey, everybody, welcome to another week of Leading Your Team Well. And I'm so blessed to get the chance to learn from Katie Cole today and uh, share the screen with her a little bit. Uh, we were joking after or before the show that, uh, you know, if one of us can't ever make it, we're pretty sure the other one can talk all by themselves for a whole hour. <laughs> I'm a recovering preacher and she knows stuff. So between those two things, you've got people that uh, are, are ready and willing to talk. And today... We want to talk about a number of things. We want to talk about uh, some questions that came in last time. We had super high engagement last week and would love to see that again. So if you want to send in your questions, uh, our moderator, Brooks Heyman, will be sure and get the questions to us. And if they don't fit this week, they might fit in coming weeks. We've got a really exciting lineup of people to come in, uh, starting with, I guess, next week we have Rufus with us. Is that right, Katie? Yeah, well, it'll happen in two weeks, but yeah, he's our next guest. Two weeks, yeah. In two weeks, Rufus Smith, a friend of mine from way back in his time in Houston, he's a pastor in Memphis, uh, wonderful, I mean, smooth as silk. When I grow up, I want to be like Rufus. Uh, he's an African-American pastor who went to a predominantly white church in a, a church where the neighborhood had really shifted and changed, and they brought him in very intentionally, and he is just right at the front edge of what it means to do diversity well. And we thought, why not make that one of the topics for now? So, but for this week, uh, Katie, we were going to talk about some of the reasons people are leaving or not leaving. I mean, why don't you uh, introduce the idea for us? Yeah. So, well, we're both really passionate about having healthy teams and leading our teams well. And today we wanted to talk about staff transitions and how to transition staff well. And I think both of us are seeing, as everyone I'm sure who's watching is, uh, employment and employment stability has really been rocked this last year. So some people have uh, lost their jobs. Some people have had to lay people off, which is a really difficult experience. But then there are a lot of people who are kind of using this as an opportunity to make a shift or a change. And so we see a lot of staff turnover happening. At least I'm seeing it with the churches I'm working with, with the leaders I'm working with. I think anytime we have kind of a crisis or a time that gets you know reset, we sort of reevaluate all things in life. And so one of the things that you and I talked about in talking about leading teams kind of coming out of the pandemic is how do you manage staff turnover? We're only going to see more of it, chances are. Um, recruitment strategies are having to be tweaked, the kind of packages we offer, how we build our team, who to keep on the team, how do we transition people off well. It's just another element of all the changes that are happening. Uh, so are, you're seeing the same too, right, in the work that massive, you're doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a massive turnover, unlike anything I've seen before. We actually, as a firm, kind of called this back in about October of last year, like this is going to happen. It's going to happen through 21. It's probably going to happen through 22. And this is not, oh, William had a bad burrito at a Tex-Mex place and decided that there's going to be turnover. No, they're actually real reasons. So I guess um, before we actually address how to deal with it, I would just say if you're feeling that turnover, you're not alone. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're feeling like it's time to make a change, you're not alone. And I don't know, Katie, it, maybe it's helpful to go over some of the like concrete reasons why this is happening. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we study, uh, we help churches find their pastor. We help schools find their headmaster. So we're kind of constantly in the higher end of recruiting. And then we have a sister company, Christian Teams, that helps on the, the sort of middle level. And across the board, we started seeing in October and November, people calling us saying, I think it might be time to make a change. And, and it got bigger in December. Well, this is what usually happens. Uh, first of all, people don't call us unless they're, you know, really serious. So we take seriously when people call. But the high call volume of people saying, I think I don't have to move, but I might move. That usually happens in January. It, it usually happens, you know, January ones when I'm going to lose 10 pounds and everybody's going to balance their checkbook and get right with Jesus. And uh, it's when we hope for a big surge in attendance and it's also the time that people say, now I'm going to take my dream job. So back in October, we start getting these calls. And it's like, this is not normal. After doing this 13 years, you see patterns. And uh, it, we, it's just not normal. So what is it? So we studied a little bit. Well, a couple of things. First of all, um, turnover did not happen in 2020. Voluntary, I would like to leave this job right now, turnover did not happen. And it's a natural thing. 
And, and I'll, I'll say this, I'll probably say it all six weeks, Katie, but I tell you something I've had to learn to divest myself of, and that is talking about my staff. Mm. And I hear pastors do it all the time. And it's, it's a, it's a moment of pride. It's a, it's a, it's a spirit of um, almost parental uh, love and shepherding love for staff. They say, that's my team. That's my team. But there's a shadow side to that where you say, those are my people and they don't need to leave. And if you have been guilty of that, let me tell you, I had to, I had to wake up to this. And I think lots of pastors maybe listening today need to as well. They are not your staff. They are Jesus staff and it is Jesus church. And it is not one church, many locations. It's one kingdom, many locations. And if you think about how Jesus got in trouble with his best friends, like not the Pharisees, Sadducees, but like his disciples, it was always getting in trouble for moving from town to town or village to village. Like, why, where did he go? Did we lose him? Is he gone? Where, where is he? He's gone again. So turnover is a natural thing. And in Jesus' church, he redeploys people to different parts of his kingdom all the time. So don't feel bad if you, quote, lose one of your people. And learn from me, because I've had to learn the hard way. You can't call them your people. They're not. Uh, you know, keep that shepherding spirit. That's awesome. But, but don't let it have the shadow side of ownership, uh, because it's just not the way it is. So having said that, sermonette over recovering preachers, sorry. You know, um, well, I think one, one other thing to add into that is, especially if you're the senior pastor or you've been at the church a long time, which a lot of executive pastors helped find the church, found the church, right, and are growing up with it, is uh, there aren't as many most of the people on your staff don't have the calling of length of time that you do over a certain flock. And so I like your idea that Jesus redeploys people in the kingdom. And so our, our goal is not to own them. Our goal is to steward them for the season God brought to us. And we want to launch them better than we got them. Right. And so how do we, how do we maximize who they are and then celebrate and, and launch and take own uh, like not ownership, but pride in them going on to another calling. That's the sign that they, grew up and have something more to go do. It is a heart shift. And when you're, when you're in crisis though, and you feel like your people are leaving, it's easy to take it personally. It is. And and, like a betrayal. Mm -hmm. Well, right. If you're the senior leader, like you don't know, unless you've sat in that senior pastor chair, what it feels like. And, you know, I have sat in that chair and you get betrayed and you get like, People come at you straight on or like I pastored in the deep South for a while as a senior pastor. And you'd go like a month or two. And so what is that itching? in my? Oh, it's a dagger that got put in there like seven months ago with somebody holding cookies in one hand. And so, you know, like when you've got people coming at you and sending you emails about you split an infinitive and you dangle the participle and you did I, like the last thing you need is for your people to betray. And it's, it's such an easy move. But you know, one thing as I started realizing my need to grow in this area, I remembered uh, a guy who was my home church pastor right before it became a home church. His name was Louis Zabinden. He died last year. Nobody would know him. He's the was the pastor at First Press San Antonio for a long, long, long time. And when he had his retirement dinner, it's it's a great church within the Presbyterian world, but it's not a Willow Creek or Mariners. Or, and when he had his retirement dinner, he had all of his former staff come back. And I remember seeing the crowd there and seeing how many senior pastors uh, had served under him as associates. And he just smiled and said, this makes me so glad and so proud. Yeah. And, and what that's like, I, God woke me up to that. Like, William, you need to think that way. Like when someone quote leaves you, you need to think deployment, right? It's and, more parental, and, right? Your kids launch. There's a reason they're with you for a while, but they go on to do other things. Yeah. yeah. Not everyone, but most people will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you sure don't want them living at home the rest of their life. <laughs> I can tell you. Uh, but, you know, so, all right. Concrete. Let me just interrupt for a second. We've got 70 people online and people joining all the time. So we want to welcome everybody. And we are just kind of talking about the reality that many of us are facing in ministry, which is people leaving our teams. Yeah. And I think what we're really trying, I hope you're all hearing us, that uh, what William and I are trying to say is that if you're experiencing that or you're fearing that's coming, you are not alone. That is the consistent experience. And even if you don't have anyone leaving now, please don't be surprised 
if in the next few months you you feel like you have a mass exodus, I hear it called, or there's some sort of turnover. That is the dynamics of the situation around you. Uh, there might be some internal dynamics too, but this is kind of a normative thing. And, and as leaders, we really want to kind of bring up some issues that we think will help you prepare for that uh, so that you can lead through that as calmly and as successfully as possible. And if you're afraid of turnover happening on your staff, let me relieve you of that fear. Mm. No reason to be afraid. It's coming. <laughs> so, <laughs> no reason to fear it. Just get ready for it. And it's because uh, voluntary turnover did not happen last year. Like usually if you think of turnover as a stream running downstream and people come and go and they leave at whatever rate it is that's normal. In 2020, a lot of people that would have normally left said, I can't leave during this. I literally can't leave my apartment during this or I can't leave my people during this, or I'm not going to make an uncertain job move during this, or no one's hiring this year's, whatever the reason, it's like the pandemic put a giant dam up in front of that river. And so you've got this buildup. And as I know, we still have a pandemic to deal with. I'm not saying be careless, but as that dam comes down and it is, the river's going to flow fast. So there's just a latency in the market. You, you also see people who are saying, I'm not sure that I am into the why of my job. He said, well, do they not love purpose anymore? Do they not love the mission? Well, not necessarily. Uh, now, pastors listening, do you have a sabbatical policy? If you don't, you should. But in sabbaticals, it's so common for someone to go away on sabbatical and they come back and within a year they've left the job. And you say, well, does that mean sabbaticals are bad? No, it doesn't mean sabbaticals are bad. What it means is when people get out of their routine, they start asking deeper questions. We're creatures of habit. We do things the same way until routine gets broken. Now, the pandemic was not a sabbatical. We all worked our tail off and kudos to all of you for being on the front lines in maybe the hardest year I've seen in ministry. But it was a year where routines got broken. So a lot of people are doing that drop back and say, this was a good bit for me when I got here. I'm not sure it's good. for People are saying, I'm not sure about the why. They're also saying, I'm not sure about the where. I mean, geographic redistribution is happening across every vertical in the job sector right now. Everyone's saying, is this where I want to live? And not just, I can work from anywhere, so I want to move too. But like, do we're doing so many searches right now where the hole was created by someone saying, I need to get closer to my parents, they're getting older. Or the grandchildren aren't going to be little for long, whatever the reason. So the where is happening. And, and then finally, there's also just a tremendous surge in succession right now. People that were going to wait five or 10 more years are like, I can't do the online and the in-person and we need a new kind of leader. So they're, they're just really concrete reasons. And I, mm -hmm. I only say that to give you some assurance that you're not alone. You're not crazy, right? That's the main reason people go to counseling is to walk out saying, okay, I'm not crazy. You're not crazy, and, and we want to give you some resources for how to, how to address, how to mitigate, how to be ready for that kind of turnover. Katie, what's, what's one resource that comes to mind for you? Well, I think one of the things that if you acknowledge that this is coming, uh, I do think it's a really great time to rethink our expectations of our team. So you talked about people getting out of uh, the routine through sabbatical or maybe the pandemic and re asking themselves, why am I here? I actually think a huge reason people leave their jobs is because of job shift, like it drifts away. So the job description I was hired, the vision, whoever gave me, who brought me on three years ago or five years ago or 10 years ago, over time, that job has shifted to that last bullet that says all other duties as assigned got way bigger than the top three that I thought I was coming to do. And that that drift um, creates a lot of unsettledness. And we don't always have a great track record in churches about managing those job descriptions and job expectations well. And we don't have a, a we're not great at performance reviews and writing things down and just sort of the process and the structure that if you've ever worked in the marketplace, those things are really critical to organizational success. And it's one of the things that we're not as disciplined about in church world. And we don't always have a culture for someone to raise their hand and be like, I don't like what I'm doing now. Like I thought I was doing this and now I'm doing that. And so I really think it's an opportunity for us to relook at our expectations of our staff, particularly the staff that are on 
the job right now. So that as people leave, you've got a really clear understanding of what they're doing, what they're not doing. Uh, the other piece is that I found um, particularly out of this year, a lot of our roles uh, have added a lot of things, but we haven't taken many things away. And so many people are feeling really exhausted. And I would say this is more common sort of from mid-level manager down where gift mixes tend to be a little bit more oriented around uh, support staff, gifts of service, um, lots of loyalty in that area of the organization. And they will still be doing the thing you mentioned to them three years ago that has no relevance in your mind now, but they are still doing it because they're so loyal and feel so responsible, high levels of responsibility. So part of our job as leaders uh, in creating an organization that can handle the flux of change is to make sure that we've got really clear distinctions of what do we want our staff to be doing? What do we want them to not be doing? And then how do we add people to the team that we're missing? That's really good. I, you know, one other thing that comes to mind, and, and by the way, that job continental drift that happens, so good. Uh, the pandemic accelerated that drift. Yes. <laughs> Usually you look up 10 years and you go, why am I doing it? This is not what I was hired to do. But now it's one year, like, mm -hmm. this is not what I was hired to do. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's just the great accelerator has moved along what happens quite often. A couple of things that, that we have been harping on pretty strong over here with people like, how do I mitigate turnover? Well, first things first, I think it's important, and this is going to sound a little Machiavellian. It's not going to sound very pastoral. So it, 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 the hate mail, just go ahead and send it. It's fine. William doesn't care. I do care. But I think everyone on this call needs to identify the three staff people that they would really just almost vomit if they left today. And that, well, you know, I, I love all of my people. Well, okay. They're not your people. <laughs> and there are some that would be harder to replace. Let's use that lens, not like the most, but like who would be critical to the mission and difficult to replace. Like on an X, Y axis, like, Critical to the mission, difficult to replace. Who's in this quadrant up here? Make a list. It shouldn't be longer than three. And now I want you to think, what do I have to do to keep them? Mm -hmm. It might be uh, the, the, the gold of right now is handwritten notes. People are so tired of texts and all the cyber things. Maybe it's just a little bit more effort on a handwritten note, right? Um, it might be compensation. And we push compensation quite a bit. In fact, I think you need to evaluate all of your compensation. If you need to do that, uh, there are lots of great tables and charts that are out there. If you need to do it in a highly contextualized way, we've actually spent two and a half years prior to the pandemic building a low cost way to do that. So just Google Vanderblum and compensation and you'll find all kinds of free resources. And then if you need to uh, have something done, we can take care of that. But, but whatever you do, pay your people enough because the little bit more you might need to pay them to get them to the right spot is far less expensive than losing them and then having to hire me or losing them and losing momentum and losing time. Uh, make sure the pay is right. And you say, well, William, my top three people, um, they're already really well paid. Okay. I think this great, I'm calling it the great COVID job churn. I think the great COVID job churn is going to be over in about 18 months. So here's what I would encourage you to do. What can you do for those three people financially just for the next 18 months or the next 12 months or even the next nine months? They're highly mission critical. They're very difficult to replace. It's worth a little money and you don't have to blow up your pace. Go here. Let me introduce you to a new phrase. I learned it in the last year, a retention bonus. Mm. You know, what, what is that? Well, Katie's nodding because she's been in the corporate world. They don't teach this in seminary. But, <laughs> but what if you sat down, Katie, you're one of my top, you know, I see you're one of my top three, but like very quietly, you're not announcing the whole staff, but Katie would clearly be one of my top three and the, you know, mission critical, hard to replace. And so I'm going to sit down with you, Katie. I'm going to say, Katie, I know we're in April and I know we pay bonuses on December 31st. And that's if, and only if we hit certain marks as a company, but here's what I want to do. I'm going to promise you a bonus of whatever the number is. Scale it to your organization, $500, $5,000, $10,000, whatever it is. Whatever you think it should be, try and double it. Just make it really gracious. And it, it's, you know, you put a lot of hard work in, Katie. 
You have busted it in a year that's unlike any other. So we want to bonus you in a, in a way unlike any other. And we're going to do that. We're going to do it December 31st. But get, you know, here's the thing. I want, to, I want to take another step. I want to give it to you tomorrow. I'm going to pay you tomorrow what you would get in December. Now, here's the backside. I want you to promise me you'll be here till the end of the year. And that doesn't mean if I fire you, you have to give the money back, you know, without cause. It doesn't mean that, you know, but, but within reason, if you'll just stay, you can keep the money. If you don't stay, you got to give me the money back. And I'm going to give you time to think about it. I'm not pressuring you into taking something. It sounds like bribery. It is bribery. I want to bonus you, but I want to make sure for the good of this organization, you are mission critical. You'd be very difficult to replace. And I want to try and lock you down for the remainder of the year for the good of everyone else here. And Katie, I don't know. Have you heard of that kind of thing before? Oh, absolutely. I would even expand it, to be really honest, because, um, well, first of all, my first question is, is there a percentage of, like, when you're wanting to give a financial bonus, do you have a percentage of salary that you recommend? Yeah. So, I, you know, that is so job specific. So I'm predicting uh, there's so many changes coming in staffing. I've been saying it for five years, and, and I think it's going to come quicker. I think merit-based pay is going to enter the church market at a much, much more aggressive. Oh, yes, please, Lord, let it. Yes. No, this is <laughs> back when I was a Presbyterian and, you know, we're not the greatest at evangelism. We're pretty frozen and chosen and I love us. But uh, I'm like, golly, how do we get more baptisms around here? I was like, you know, if we paid pastors per baptism, then, you know, we would probably see different results. And then I remembered that's kind of, almost what the Catholics were doing right before the Yeah, record. I'm not sure that's so, the right way to go. I don't think we should officially recommend that at all. <laughs> but, okay, but, so you're saying it, it doesn't, I just wondered if there was a guideline, like 10% well, so, so 20%. It just depends. Like I, I have, we're a very merit-based company. So mm-hmm. people get paid. We're not a church. Yeah. It, it, we're not a church. So if people, you know, it's very normal conversation right here. It might not be normal for you guys. I, I think if you could think in the range of, if you haven't done any bonusing before, like 10%. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. I've done bonusing before. We're talking about three people in your organization. Double what you would normally do. Mm-hmm. Like make it so extravagant that they're like, I, I will stay through the end of the year for that. And if they won't sign it, then you know, okay, you know, we might be looking at a change here. You don't fire them, but like just start to get ready for that really hard to replace mission critical person. So I love this idea. Um, I probably, the way I talk about it is I really think it's a great time to rethink our benefits packages in which salary is one of those. And I think what you're talking about is a leadership conversation with another person on the staff who's probably in some sort of leadership or influential role. But honestly, sometimes the person you just can't stomach losing is your admin assistant or the database person, right? Who has the entire church memorized and is the only person who understands how to operate that thing. So it it doesn't have to be the top platform person. And I think sometimes it's really important as a leader to step back from what we think is the most impactful part of our church and actually look at the whole organization and find out where those linchpin roles are that if that person went away, man, all the ripple effects of that. Sometimes it's a really relationally integrated person and they carry the weight of many things. So all of those pieces I think are important. I think financial is a big one, but I don't think it's the only one. And I think one of the things we're seeing in changing employees, I see this a lot with female leaders. I see it a lot with Gen YZ leaders. I see it a lot with people if you're hiring from other countries, if there's big cultural shifts or you have campuses or church locations in other companies, is that the value of pay is not the same for every person. And we know this as leaders, we motivate people differently. So I would just say opening up the leadership conversation and saying, hey, as a leader, you are someone I count on. Your value to me is really significant. And I I would like to know what it would take to make sure I don't have to worry about you for the next 18 months. Like, is there, if I did something, and, and if we did it, you could say, I would not even question being here for the next 18 months. Then it's it, so less maybe of the bribe conversation, although that's a funny angle, a little bit more of like, could you help me as your leader not have to worry about you? Like, if I could just know that you were one of the people I didn't have to worry about for the next 18 months, and I can make your job a place that you would not want to leave for at least that time, I open the conversation back up later. You might be surprised that 
finances might be the issue for some, right? I'm like behind in my bills or I'm trying to save for something, but it could be things like the flexibility of my schedule. This is why I'm an advocate for hybrid or some virtual work because for many leaders, being able to work from home, helping their kids, having a different pace of life changes things a lot. Sometimes it's extra vacation. Uh, I remember one high capacity person who worked for me and they just wanted two more weeks of vacation. They lived away from both their family and they could with two or three weeks vacation, they couldn't get their away with their own kids and have a significant visit to each side of their family. So we added 10 days of vacation time. It changed everything for them. They could hit all their priorities and that's all it cost us, which cost us almost nothing organizationally at the level that they were at. Sometimes it's a pay or excuse me, it's a title change. So what I tell women, particularly who are wanting to advocate more influence or more authority is the easiest yes is a promotion without any change in pay or responsibility. Again, that job description drift, if you are now overseeing multiple things and you have way more people and you've added a whole bunch of volunteers, you can go and and say to your leader or your leader can say, hey, I want to make you the director. I know nothing will change as it has been for the last six months or the last six years, but I want to acknowledge who you are, what you're bringing. What that does for me as a leader is it makes anything I want to do in the future go up about six notches, even if you do, even if it costs you nothing except paying attention. So there's all sorts of things. I think crafting our benefits packages, even as you're recruiting people, and I know we've gotten a couple of questions I want to get to about uh, benefits packages, housing packages with the market going crazy, uh, healthcare benefits, mental health benefits for individuals and families. All of those are things that I think we can not only add, but actually just educate our employees on like, hey, we already have purchased these services for you. You just may not know you have access to them. Um, I think a couple critical pieces um, also is when you're recruiting folks is to think about their staff, their spouse, if their spouse wants a job. It's been really easy for churches just to add their spouse onto the team. Um, I think that has really challenging consequences long-term for both spouses, for the family. And when you're tight on budget, it is not always easy to afford both people. So I really encourage people to access not only your staff mindset, but your entire church. Where else can that person work? If they're having trouble finding a house, who can you access in the congregation that maybe has a second home or maybe is a realtor or maybe is an investor and wants to invest in affordable housing? There's all sorts of creative ways. If you think about your whole church as the resourcing, not just your staff budget and your salary budget that you're trying to hold at a certain percentage. Totally agree with you. I love, love, love the change in title. It's the cheapest promotion you can ever give. Give it to everyone after COVID. Everyone deserves a promotion. <laughs> I, I will say um, it's interesting. I'm a one-year Bible guy and my, uh, so it's Old Testament, New Testament, Psalm, Proverbs. And my proverb this morning was, uh, there's a way that seems right to a man, and it's a way that ends in death. <laughs> so I kind of run that through my head as you're, and I'm remembering back when we were a really young company, and I mean, like really young, like we had like four people, right? And I, I just started handing out time. You can be the CFO and you be the COO, I'll be the CEO. And, and that was great, but it's really hard to undo. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I wouldn't necessarily just go crazy and inappropriate or just because it feels good to the person. But yeah. again, we're talking about that top percentage. And I would even say it's probably, my recommendation would be the top 10%. So if you have a staff of 30, that's your top three. If you have a staff of 300, you're looking at your top 30 people. You probably have multiple ministries or multiple campuses, and you've got a linchpin in every one of those pillars of ministry in your church. And, and any one of those represents two to 600 people who could lose their way and lose their connection from your church if you lost the linchpin. And I just want to remind you, the linchpin is, uh, might not be the white male pastor who has the title. <laughs> the linchpin is the person who's connecting with volunteers and making ministry happen. And so just try to go a little outside. This is a great time also in terms of like preparing for attrition is to really take a look at your pay and benefits structure, how you're paying people, what their titles are, and make sure you've got equity built in. Our society is no longer going to tolerate inequitable pay, 
titles. Yeah. And this is not a theological issue around women, but that matters. And so oh. you don't have to have the same title, but you do have to have equal title, equal pay, equal benefits. Many times women are not licensed for ministry and it's well within many most churches theological framework to do that that is a huge tax benefit it costs you nothing except a piece of paper that you give her in a tax status so those kind of pieces now is the time to kind of open up the hr books hire services if you need to bring in some hr expertise from your church or other places to audit and really set things right so that moving forward you can trust that what you built you can really uh, sort of i call it passing the red face test if someone opened up your books or someone said what they made in a meeting that everyone's face, no one's face would turn red. Everyone would feel proud about what was happening. This is a great time to do that. I just add to these great ideas Katie's put out. There's a tightrope that I've had to learn that I walk as a senior leader. One is how do I address the individual situation of the person? And as a pastor, your staff people are kind of your parishioners as well. I mean, maybe not technically, but it's different than just employer-employee relations. So how do you address it individually? And at the same time, how do you make sure it scales? Like, so I would actually push back on you, Katie, on the person that just needs two weeks vacation, where I, we do compensation studies for churches, particularly, you know, churches that are multi-staff and forever we're walking in where one person got one deal and one person got another deal and another person got another deal just because they have four kids. So they need this deal and this one, well, I'm single. Why don't I get the, so it's a tightrope. You've got to make it individual, but you've got to make it scale. Like, for instance, if somebody needs two weeks vacation in order to keep them the next year, give them the pay equivalent of two weeks and tell them to take unpaid leave. Now oh, you, perfect. Now you've not blown up your PTO schedule. You've Good. not why does she get two more weeks off and I don't? And, and this whole retention bonus idea, you've got to remember, this is not an equitable conversation. You're only going to have it with three people, right? Maybe four, but it's not equity. It's fair because it's going to help and save the whole organization. Remember, who is mission critical and hard to replace? And a lot of times that's the person with the most institutional memory that doesn't make much money. So it's mission critical, hardest to replace. Who's in that quadrant? And, and this does not need to get on the company grapevine. It doesn't need to be announced. It doesn't need to be at the water cooler because it's not equitable. You're making inequitable decisions to be fair to the whole organization. So, so make it personal, but make it scale. Yes, that's really good. I love that. And I would say, well, a couple of questions that we've gotten in. What yeah. are you recommending for people um, who are facing some challenges recruiting and hiring because of the housing shifts that have happened? So urbanization, of course, housing markets have been flooded for a while, really high, difficult to bring people in from other areas. But we're really seeing that spread all around the country now. Even in some rural areas, they're getting priced out of the housing market for especially ministry-based salaries. How do you recommend, what suggestions have you seen, um, or what do you, have you seen and what suggestions do you have? So, so again, and, and these are just a few ideas, right? There are probably lots of solutions, but I think COVID has accelerated trends that were already happening. And one trend that we had seen happening for quite a while is churches are getting back in the business of owning property. Mm -hmm. And, and sometimes that is as simple this is like the old fashioned parsonage, right? <laughs> the old fashioned parsonage. Yep. It's not just for the pastor. Multi-staff churches are owning three and four apartments that they put associate pastors that they like this person won't be here in five years. Why make them buy a house and why not give them a place mm -hmm. to live and then we maintain the equity. Here's the news. The housing boom is not going away. This is, I don't think this is a bubble. And I'm not hearing anyone say it is. This is just a People reset. People are saying this is the new thing. Yes. It's the, it's the way it's going to be. And it may be as simple as making some good hard asks to retirees in your church that are downsizing to say, why don't you consider an amazing charitable gift to the church, which you can get a tax write-off for, and let us purchase your home for undervalue or just give it to us and then have that parsonage. We, we saw this coming in, you know, clients that are in Palo Alto, that are in the DC area, that are up near Boston. I mean, you can fill in the blanks with the places that are really expensive, but now everywhere is expensive. So, you know, it, it, maybe you own the home. Uh, another workaround, if you don't want to do that, is to go to some big donors in your church and say, 
how about we create a pool of money, protected fund, just for equity purchases? And you do what's called an equity share with your staff. That means like, hey, you can only afford 5% and you need a 20% down payment. We'll cover the other 15%. That means you own a fourth of the house. We own three-fourths of the house and we're going to make it a split. There, there are ways to do that. I mean, we can point you in the right direction. You'll need an attorney to be involved to make sure it's just right. A good paper will make for good departures whenever that person leaves. But I see the shift back to the good old parsonage happening very, very readily. And I think it's a cool time for churches to learn uh, why did we get out of parsonages? Some of it was so ministers would have something to retire, but others, I got one guy on my staff, Katie, he said that the, so the church, there was the pulpit, the choir loft behind him, and then a door that went into the parsonage. And he said, every, every Sunday morning, about 10 o'clock, the chair of the deacons would show up in my kitchen wanting to talk about you. And like, no, do not do that to anybody. <laughs> so learn from the mistakes of the past. And maybe it's time to get back in the housing market. Yep. Some good boundaries around that. Uh, one of the things that I've seen too is sort of a payback loan structure. I see this a lot with education. These are two good benefits you can add into your package when you're recruiting is uh, kind of upfronting the money as someone's benefit or someone's package offer. So we'll give you a small loan, three to $5,000. But if you stay on staff more than three years or more than five years, the loan is forgiven, right? So if you decide after a year you're getting out, then you pay the three to $5,000 back. It just helps someone move from that like $5,000 down payment to a 10,000 or be able to amp up something. Yeah. Painful mistake that I learned. It was a much larger loan. It's about a hundred thousand dollar loan. And if you stay 20 years, it goes away. So it's 5,000 year, a year, right? Um, you can try and skirt it, but the IRS doesn't like that. Uh, you have to, just like a family can't loan money to another family member, there's a set imputed interest rate for that loan. And, and there's taxation on it, yes. And taxation on it, it's a yeah. taxable fringe benefit. Mm -hmm. And you either need to gross up their pay where they can pay that taxable fringe benefit back or rework the amortization to take it into account. But it's not free money and you can't, there are no free loans. The government wants right. you to charge interest and they want to charge income tax on the interest. And boy, if ever there were a time to make sure you're squeaky clean with the IRS, it's right now. Uh, I would say also in terms of benefits packages, education is another great way to do that. So especially if you have partnerships, either for employees with seminaries or um, discounts or educational benefits that you put in your HR packages, or even for their families. So I know a lot of people who choose positions at churches because their kids get educated by the Christian school that either the church runs or something local, there's a partnership there. So education benefits, housing benefits, those are all things that are great ways to get creative. I think what you're saying, William, is true. You have to like look at how do you actually roll that out. These are not things you just add in out of the ideation, you kind of have to work it through with the laws of your state. You have to make sure you check it with a lawyer, but all of that kind of creativity, I think are going to be the ways that we really get the edge on recruitment. Um, go ahead. And one that has no compensation attached to it. And it's in the hiring. It can also be in the annual review, which if you're not doing annual reviews, you need to do them. Yeah. But I've had this happen in our company. We've had people leave because they couldn't see a path of progression for their career. So like on the hiring, like how are you painting a picture and speaking vision into somebody, not promising them a job, that's, that's dumb. But like, we're not hiring you for this job. We're hiring you for this. And for those entrusted with little and are faithful with little, they'll be given much, right? So like, here's where we see this job progressing over time. That's how, if you can tie your continuing education to that path of progression and not just, I wanna go to the cool conference this year, but like make it, Okay, in order to get to the next step, you need to develop this skill. So let's pay you to get this. Like if you can tie those together, you, you'll increase your retention a whole lot. Mm -hmm. I think too, um, in a post-COVID world, even though this won't affect 100% of the people you're recruiting, I do think medical benefits become are much more on people's minds. And so I really recommend 
uh, actually educating people on their benefits package you probably have already purchased. So what are the full health benefits? What are the mental health benefits? I think mental health is a huge hot topic right now. It's becoming very normalized. A lot of pastors are talking about getting counseling and going on medication. And so if you have that already built into your package, it's important to highlight that right now for your employees and their families. There are many, like the, the rate of depression in teenagers is going through the roof. I think ministry spouses who normally um, are a higher population that deal with that are having it even higher. So all of those needs have just, as you said earlier, accelerated or been accentuated. So educating on that, if you don't have those kind of benefits, I would really encourage you to add that. There's some things churches are doing in terms of adding staff counselors or making arrangements. And we talked about this a little bit uh, when we met last time. So if you want more of that discussion, you can uh, check out the last webinar that we did. Um, but I think also uh, talking through things like short-term disability, FMLA, all of those resources that maybe only your HR person knows what they mean. Everyone just signs their you know, benefits package or gets online and renews it every year, but really knowing the benefits you have and being able to sustain the staff members you want to keep is part of it. And sometimes when people are feeling stressed, if they're dealing with some of those uh, long-term fatigue or even long hauler COVID syndromes, they're going to want to go towards family. They're wanna going to kind of retreat back and sort of regroup their family. And you probably have already paid for the professional service that can help buoy them up and keep them in the game. And so, you know, I think it's important to remember it's very costly to turn over your staff. It takes 18 months for someone, the typical professional worker, to get up to speed on a new job. So, and that's if nothing else changes in the middle of that 18 months. So just really fighting for those people you want to keep and making sure you're using all the resources you've already purchased uh, and everyone's accessing those uh, if they need them. Now, I, I would add to that, Ironically, I'm the one adding, uh, you need to look at your maternity leave policy. Like it's, it's, there's not much that's required for maternity leave. Uh, unless you have 50 or more employees, you really, there are really no rules. So like, what are you doing? And you say, well, I can't afford, like, it's great for companies that have 500 people to give 12 weeks maternity. I can't afford that. I've only got six employees and two of them are women. And if they both go out at the same time, we can't get the work done. Like, how do you fix that? Well, there are ways to fix that. Let, let them purchase short-term disability that gives them some salary while they're out. And then it's, it's like, okay, we can actually make this work. You know, there, there are ways around it, but the, the people who win at the maternity leave will keep their employees longer, unless you don't want to have any women on staff, which would be kind of dumb. <laughs> well, and paternity, paternity leave, I mean, parent leave is a huge piece. Um, and so I think, especially as we come out of COVID, there's going to be a lot of kids who need extra help from their parents. And so, and, and I would just say, uh, Katie, we do all these compensation studies and we used to just do, what do you make and how does that stack up? And then we realized there is such disparity among churches with what the benefits package actually That's is. Like if you're in a mainline church, Presbyterians, Methodists, they're all required to cover the entire family of clergy. Nobody does that in the work world. So if you're doing that, you're giving somebody about 15,000 extra dollars a year and it never shows up in their paycheck. So like having a just it doesn't take long to Google like we offer this level of insurance and that stacks up against other businesses as really good. And if it's really bad, you really need a different answer. So, yeah. But sometimes the easiest thing is when you make your offer letter to make sure you're listing all the benefits you're giving, even things like if you're offering cell phone packages. And I think if you are expecting to call your staff after hours, cell phone packages should be part of what you are. If you want them to be on call, you have to provide a way for them to be on call. So all of those benefit packages, all of those things that you offer, um, even development money, conference money, all of that is are pieces you're investing in your employee. It's helpful for an employee to know what those are and be able to measure them about around any other offers that they they currently have. And if you do do annual reviews, which I know that's kind of like a blase thing, but I'm like, if you don't do any reviews, at least do one a year. <laughs> so it's not getting rid of reviews. It's moving them actually to more frequent. But if you don't do formalized reviews any other time, at least do them once a year. And that's another great thing to say, like, hey, we want you to stay another year. And here's all the things that we believe we're giving you for the work you're returning. It's just about good understanding and being on the same page. That's great. 
So uh, see if there's any more questions. If any of you have questions, I want to welcome everybody. If we haven't gotten to, we got kind of into our good conversation there, but we've got about 15 more minutes. And so if you've got some questions for us on attrition and staff turnover, please shoot them into the chat. We would love to address them. I'd say two other things we talked, I jumped in with compensation, but two other places that we're telling our clients, we want to mitigate your turnover. So there's compensation, which I would start with who's on your, I call it, I need a better term, but your vomit list. Like who are those three that if they left, you just throw up. Um, and then across the board, how's your pay look? Secondly, do people want to work at your workplace? Like, is it a place they actually tolerate or celebrate? Right. If you can work on your workplace culture and make it a place people celebrate rather than tolerate, that's that's a lot. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, culture is a buzzword, William. I don't know what to do with it. it let me give you a free resource. The culture tool, T-O-O-L dot com. You can take a free test, see how you're doing at the base level of health or toxicity, the culture And then if you want to build a a unique culture, which you have, it's really discovering the unique culture you have. There are lots of great resources for that. I, we wrote a book called culture wins, but, and we don't even do culture work. It's just more like, how do you make this a place where when people get here, they're bringing their friends saying we should hire my friend this. And like, that's a whole different shift. And then, and then finally, just really quickly hand away more authority then you think you should, you know, whether it's uh, millennials or Gen YZ, however you want to say what the bulk of the workplace is. Number one complaint I hear is they never ask my opinion. They never really give me authority. And uh, I think our mutual friend, Craig Rochelle said, uh, said it well, he may not have said it first, but he said, you know, if you, if you give away tasks, you will surround yourself with doers. If you give away authority, you'll surround yourself with leaders yeah. And I'd take it one other step. If you give away tasks, you're going to have a revolving door of a staff. Mm. You give away authority, you're going to have people who will stay with you a long, long time. Awesome. That's great. So we've got a couple questions coming in. Uh, and I'll let you take this first one. How much of a difference is there between clergy and non-clergy staff when it comes to compensation? For the moment, a lot. Uh, we deal with it on the reverse side. We have clergy who want to come work for us. And they have to give up all their tax benefits because we're not a church. And it's like they didn't know what they were making. They're like, wow, did I get that tax break and that tax break? The single biggest tax break in the entire IRS code is the ministerial housing allowance. It's, it's irrational, frankly. I think it's the same housing allowance Congress gives itself. Yes, so it, it's in the same package, which is why it hasn't been touched yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's going to get left alone as long as it can. And I, my prediction is it will go away in our lifetime. It's I, not, I it's yeah. just too good. Uh, and, and it can be depending on the cost of your housing and the size of your mortgage. I mean, it can be a fifty, sixty thousand dollars swing really quickly. So that, that one's a big one. Um, ministers, you know, churches can pay, uh, ministers can opt out of social security and then churches can pay them half of what they would have had to pay for their FICA or the social security. So that's another little thing. There are a few little tax breaks here and there. I mean, mileage is the same for pastors or non-pastors, but the big one is the housing allowance. And Katie, I'd love to hear your opinion. You touched on it earlier, but I just came from a meeting of uh, uh, Southern Baptist pastors of larger churches. And this was a question, you know, if we have females on staff, obviously in their context, they're not going to ordain women, right? So how does a church that theologically, like out of, their understanding of principle, they're not going to ordain a woman. How can they get female employees a housing allowance and do it legitimately? Sure. Well, uh, if you look at what it means to be a minister, there are not very big requirements. It doesn't have anything to do with theological stance. So whether you're on the conservative complementarian side or more progressive egalitarian side, the government doesn't look at that. They look at function. And so I would say, especially in really conservative environments, if you've got a female leader who is overseeing all your children's ministry, there is a pastoral spiritual responsibility she's carrying, right? She's shepherding those kids. In many contexts, she's baptizing them. If there's communion, she's serving communion because she is the spiritual leader over children. That's part of complementary theology is that women can have spiritual authority over 
people who aren't adults, both girls and boys, you know, young adults, young women. And so uh, in that regard, she's actually carrying out the ministry. Uh, if it were a man, you'd call him a pastor, but because she's a woman, we don't call her a pastor, but she has that same authority over the shepherding and the flock that she's been given. And so as long as she's carrying out those ministerial tasks, the IRS would qualify her as being licensed for ministry. I'm so grateful for the language because if it was licensed to pastor, it would you know, erupt into a big debate, but licensed to be a minister, a minister of the gospel on behalf of your church. Most churches feel very comfortable um, with those kind of distinctions. So I would say, look into that for your, you know, every church is different, how you view that, how your culture would view that. Um, most it, it's usually never public whether someone is licensed for ministry. Um, but I would say the same thing is on the flip side. So if you have full-time men who are serving in ministry, but are not uh, seminary degreed, or they're not carrying out the work of the ministry, I remember one of the first churches I worked at, um, this was a key strategy to hiring male staff was to make them pastors. And so like the pastor of the facilities and the pastor of the AV team, well, those, the custodian and the sound tech are never distributing communion. They're not baptizing anyone. They aren't shepherding a flock. They might have a handful of people on their volunteer team, but it's not the same as someone overseeing an entire ministry. So those guys, in my opinion, actually would not qualify for ministerial benefits, but many of the females that you have women's ministry, where sometimes there are hundreds of women being shepherded, that would clearly fall into that line. So I would just say, um, and you know from my writings, like I try to not take a theological stance. I do take a stance that we should maximize all of our leaders. And this is one way you can really do that. That's within the boundaries of your, your theology and within your legal right as a church-based organization. Super, super helpful. And I would just double underline, be careful with the IRS. The church has, we've been, they've been very good to us for the history of the existence of the two together. That's changing. So, you know, decisions to license someone for ministry, more importantly, the decision for a housing allowance has to be approved by the board of the church. You cannot do it under the table. It, you will get fried for that. So like the board has to decide it. The board has to approve an amount at the beginning of the year that is set aside for housing allowance. It's not just, oh, do what you want and then take the deduction. It, it's got to be in the minutes of your board meeting. By the way, if you're not taking minutes at a board meeting, you need to do that too. Uh, but uh, Well, we have to shore up all of our systems and processes. Again, that's right. If someone pops the hood on our engine, what does it look like? Can we answer the questions? It's like in our private taxes, uh, we we keep records because if we get audited, because there's a good chance we will all be audited at some point, we just have to be able to show that what we said is what we did. It's not about finding where we made a mistake. Even right. if you have a mistake, you can file a report that says, I made a mistake, right? I made an honest mistake. You don't get in trouble for honest mistakes. You get in trouble for trying to hide things or not doing your due diligence on what is required of us. And that's part of the management of leadership that we're responsible for. So I, another question that I just saw in the chat window, um, we have two part-time people resigning. And is it better to have one full-time versus two part-time? I, I would, at the risk of being trite with scripture texts, I would look at how Jesus did his hiring. I don't see any part-time disciples. And I know that church has to have part-time people, but I get this question a lot, like, hey, we're going to hire. It's not even part-time. It's like we got two $50,000 employees, but we could probably do one person and just pay them a lot more than that, which is better. I'm like, always take higher capacity people, always, because they will replicate themselves in the volunteer ranks. I would say, take those two part-time salaries, turn it into a full-time job. And it's fewer people to manage, which is fewer hours of management, fewer headaches, fewer everything. And it's probably more volunteer output if you get at always pay more for fewer employees. That's been a, a truth that's never failed me in 13 years. <laughs> well, I disagree. 
<laughs> I would say it depends on what ministry you're in and what are the tasks that you're being assigned. Um, my hunch is if you've got two part-time staff, it's probably not like part-time worship and part-time students. You're probably looking at support staff. And for me, um, when you run mostly a volunteer-based ministry, having two heads working on your team, so you have a team of three staff members now rather than a team of two, usually multiplies volunteers. So let me just say, if this were children's ministry, for example, uh, which has a lot of part-time employees, partly because the best part-time or the best employees in children's ministry tends to be people in a season of parenting that lines up with that ministry. And so maximizing your dollars through part-time can sometimes be a very strategic role, especially if you're looking at a job that's mostly a weekend job and volunteer recruitment. You've got more, you've got more relationships, more heads in the game. The one place that I think this um, goes against it, which I would agree with you on this Vanderbilt, is that if you're looking for full-time engagement, you want each of these two part-time people to be at every Every staff meeting, at every volunteer rally, at every everything, which a lot of church cultures do, they want everybody at everything. Uh, when you do that, you suck up so much of their time that they can't actually get their job done. So this goes back to what I talked about at the beginning of the call, which is really auditing where your team is spending their time. Is it really necessary for every 15-hour employee to be at a 90-minute staff meeting every single week? Maybe but that's a lot of dollars you're spending and a lot of time when people are trying to balance an entire life and a 15-hour part-time job. So re this is a great time to rethink your communication rhythms, your decision rights, how many people you have concentrating on a pool of people to shepherd them. So I would just say if you're looking at pastoral heads, yes, full-time is better. If you're looking at more uh, mid-level managers and down, especially volunteer-based recruiters, I think the more the merrier. And and one of the best things I've, I personally learned that you just highlighted and we could fly right over it is that's an expensive meeting. Hey, y'all that are listening, do you know what your meetings cost? <laughs> when you add it up, it's shocking. Like what's the hourly wage of each of the people in the meeting? And we're going to meet for an hour and a half. If you run that, I bet your meetings get shorter. I and bet please add in mileage. Please add in mileage if you require everyone to come to one main location. Add in the mileage and time on the road. It, it would. It's it. It's it's a soft cost that people don't pay attention to. But like, figure out what your meetings actually cost you, and then ask yourself: Is it worth it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we have one other question that asked for a resource about um, housing benefits. Do you have anything um, that outlines that specifically? Yeah, sure. If you go to okay. vanderblumen.com and just enter housing in the search engine, you'll find it. We have like over 3,000 free resources for people on all these sorts of staffing questions, HR questions, you know, even down to how do I fire a volunteer questions. So, um, Yeah. And I think too, one of the one of the great resources we had in our church, which I recommend for everyone if you can find it, is if you've got a CPA in your church that's really trustworthy and has a heart for ministry, is that if they can become a specialist in pastoral benefits to serve as a resource for you as a church, but also for your pastors, that is an incredibly helpful ministry because that navigating housing, it took me seven years to finally nail down how to allocate correctly, what receipts I should do, how to maximize that benefit. And so just really trying to research your people, like you probably have a lawyer on, on retainer for um, legal issues, especially around church dynamics. I would say a CPA that can consult, you can consult with, make sure everything's above board and that your people are doing it all above board. I think it's a really wise investment. Super good. This has been a great conversation. I uh, don't see any other questions in the, hub, but man, I've been amazed at the engagement and yeah. the number of people that are coming. So many really people, it's great. Some of the topics that are coming up. Katie, any that come to top of mind that you're, you want to preview? Uh, oh, yeah. Well, we have some great um, topics coming up. We're going to talk about, we mentioned at the beginning of the hour, some um, issues around diversity and particularly how you can really build your team and do some strategic recruiting around that. I think it's something everyone's paying attention to. Um, we're going to try and uh, hit that topic. We're going to talk about uh, hybrid workplaces and also generational differences in workplace um, as sort of our generational span continues to go up. Again, these are all issues that were before the pandemic, but now they're really accelerated how to lead teams uh, in that dynamic as well. 
That's great. I saw one last question come in. I'm going to punt it. It was, if I'm in the second chair and my pastor's leaving and the new guy's coming in this summer, what resources? I would, uh, it's shameless plug, buy the book Next, Pastoral Succession that works. There are two editions. You want the newest one, updated and expanded. If you, how do I find it? Go to Amazon, try typing Vanderbilt and you'll find it. And uh, it's probably 200 case studies that are wrapped up of, of how succession goes well and how it doesn't. And part of that is how do you do it from the second chair? I love that. I do. I highly recommend that book. And I think you even talk through that on like having a succession ready culture. So I think part of it is even the mindset of the tone and the language we use. So if I could leave just one final thought, I think we need to really be intentional about our language with our teams. We know that there's change coming, but if we don't take the time to tell our teams, they're going to start to question, just like it's easy for us to question. They're going to start to question what's wrong with this place if all these things are happening. And so one of the most important things when you're managing change and people's emotions is to not only talk about what's changing, but what is also staying the same. So particularly for a senior pastor transition or any high level leaders, just remind people over and over again, hey, this is changing, but these things will never change. This is always what we come back to. This is who we are. This is what we're about. These things are staying the same. So good. Great. Thank you so much for the wisdom, Katie. And thank you all for joining this week. Hope you'll come back. This is the second of six And I think you can get the recording of the first one if you'd like. Uh, We're looking forward to the live interaction on uh, Thursdays at this hour. But uh, we'd also be glad to see you download some things. So thanks for making time for us and everybody's busy. And we'll see you again next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye.